This is the Chronicles Podcast, a production of Chronicles Magazine, the original outlet for paleoconservative thought and a bastion of the authentic right in America. Well, welcome to another episode of Chronicles Magazine podcast. I'm very happy to be joined today by Ken McIntyre. He is a professor of political science over at Sam Houston State. So, uh, Ken, thank you for joining me. No problem. All right. Tell me a little bit about, uh, so we're talking today about Herbert Butterfield. You had a recent essay in this month's Chronicles Magazine through their Remembering the Right series, and it was on Herbert Butterfield, who was a historian, but also a historiographer, you know, a theorist of, of what it means to study history, uh, which for some people might sound a little boring, but it's actually fascinating. And there are very difficult intellectual problems involved with that. And Butterfield, um, in many ways, blazed new trails and, you know, grappled with difficult aspects of, of that field of study. So before we get into Butterfield's thought specifically, I want to know, you know, what caused your interest in someone like Herbert Butterfield? Well, um, it, I, I, uh, I had an interest in 19th and 20th century uh, British intellectual history that was connected in part to my graduate work. I did my dissertation on uh, Michael Oakeshott, but I also um, um, wrote on um, R.G. Collingwood, uh, and both of them were um, well. I think probably the two the two most important sort of philosophers of history in the 20th century. Um, and by philosophy of history here, I'm not talking about the sort of Hegelian sort of speculative philosophy of history, which Butterfield is actually quite critical of. Uh, um, but the philosophy of history, which is concerned with primarily with epistemological questions, how is it that how is it that human beings can say we know what happened in the past? Now, obviously, human beings have individual you know memories uh, and can say accurately or not. You know, yesterday I went to school, um, but how can I know how can I know what happened five hundred years ago? Um, because at least a, a sort of common realist conception of epistemology is that uh, if I say something, uh, if I make a statement, for example, that the sun is shining, then my statement is true if it corresponds with reality. But of course, when we're talking about epistemological realism, we're always talking about the current situation. Whereas what we're talking about with history is making a claim that something happened 500 years ago, but of course that situation doesn't exist. So there is no situation to compare our statement with other than whatever we have as evidence. Uh, um, and so um, Butterfield was actually a, a friend of Oakshot's at Cambridge, and they talked about history quite a bit uh, and um, so I, my degree is in political science, although I'm a political theorist, um, but I studied intellectual history too. And one of the um, intellectual historians at graduate school, where I went to graduate school, was a guy named Bill McClay, who was interested in some historiographical questions too. So on the one hand, I had the sort of Collingwood and Oakeshott philosophy of history stuff, but um, I read the way interpretation of history in grad school and uh, and uh, was impressed by it not by the sort of what philosophical profundity of it but by the 
clarity and accessibility of it that is Collingwood and Oakshot are not easy reads in some way <laughs> whereas Butterfield actually does translate some of this stuff uh, uh, into a language which is which is much more accessible um, and so I had written a, again the dissertation turned into a book on Oakshot and I was sort of thinking about writing something else uh, and I had a discussion with whew, I'm, 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 I can't remember the guy's name. <laughs> a guy, a guy who was at uh, uh, Jeremy Beer, that's who was at ISI, uh, and we were at some conference somewhere, and we started talking about Butterfield, and he more or less said, "Hey, if you're interested in him, why don't you write a book on him?" <laughs> I said, "Okay, why not?" Uh, and so that's how it sort of came about, um, and uh, I, I found him a fairly, you know. Well, I was fairly sympathetic to much of what he wanted to say, so I didn't find the book to be extraordinarily onerous or unpleasant, since it was, you know, writing about um, a person that I had at least some admiration for. Let's talk about his context a little bit. He was born in 1900 in England. Um, what was going on in the academy at the time, and you know what what caused him to kind of go down the path that he he went down? Well. Um, <clears throat> There was a lot of uh, uh, there, there, there was a lot of radical change um, because, of course, World War One had just destroyed much of the institute, you know, the, the sort of the ancien regime, uh, um, both in terms of the international system uh, uh, in Europe, and it more or less destroyed the British Liberal Party, um, uh, and, and Butterfield, along with the, this whole sort of generation. Uh, grew up with a kind of healthy skepticism uh, uh, about um, sort of the traditional authority figures in British politics. Um, Noel Anan, who was another British historian, wrote a book called Our Age, which was, he, he came from a generation later, but was writing about some of the, the sort of mentors and people like uh, Evelyn Waugh and... Um, the poet was Robert Graves, I think, um, and, and uh, um, you know, Auden and, and, and others. Uh, <clears throat> there was a, a sense that something had gone, had gone terribly wrong. Um, Butterfield himself studied at Peterhouse, um, Cambridge, Peterhouse College at Cambridge, which Peterhouse was famous for its history faculty. And I think his mentor was named Harold Temperley and had been doing a lot of work on uh, 18th century England, um, sort of undermining what uh, um, Butterfield would eventually call the Whig interpretation of history. That is the notion that, you know, the best way of thinking about historical, the historical events is that everything is sort of progressing and leading up to, you know, us. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, um, or more specifically, the, the Whigs were writing a history, a history of Britain that more or less was, again, progressive, and it was the story of, you know, an ever-increasing amount of, uh, 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 of freedom for everyone, uh, and so there was an increasing skepticism about that, and, and so uh, that's, I think that's contributed uh, um, to Butterfield's writing the, the Whig interpretation. Um, he never left Cambridge pretty much. And so I mean, he, uh, 
he did his undergraduate degree and got a fellowship and uh, um, remained there, became professor and then Regis professor, and then actually became vice chancellor of the university eventually, which is the highest academic um, um, academic administrative uh, position. It's kind of like being the president of an American university. Um, so, uh, um, um, so he was a part of a new generation of historians that 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 started taking seriously the notion that um, historical explanation is concerned with making the past intelligible um, without regard to the pat the relevance of the past to our own problems. Okay, so he so he writes the Whig interpretation of history, which is is what he's known for today. And everyone, a lot of people refer to this the Whig theory of history. They don't realize that this came out of Butterfield. Um, so he was interpreting people who basically just saw history as progressive, as kind of always progressing forward and culminating in you know the modern liberal age. Um, did he offer an alternative to that? Uh, well, I mean, the in the broadest sense, um, Whigism. Whiggism is for Butterfield is is presentism, and that is treating the past solely on the basis of our, our concerns about the present. So it could be so. Just as an example, Oswald Spengler's de decline of the West, um, even though it's a, a obviously a story of not of progress but of decadence, uh, from a sort of Butterfieldian perspective, that's Whiggish too. Mm. That is. If the if a person is if, if a person's primary concern is how does the past actually tell me what to do now, that in itself is Whiggish. And his alternative, what he calls technical history or academic history, sometimes, is that the historian more or less presupposes that the past is a foreign country. The difficulty for the historian is to make past events, past individuals, past actions, etc., intelligible not to excuse them but or, or not to praise them not to blame them but to make them intelligible and how you how an historian does that is to place past historical events in the context of other past historical events more or less mm -hmm. um butterfield doesn't reject the the use of the past for sort of present practical purposes but he does but he says that that's just not a historical past uh so so one example of the, I mean, so so an example of of a practical past is a lawyer's past, right? Are the are our attorneys concerned with the origins, the true origins of Magna Carta? No, they're concerned with what relevance Magna Carta has for contemporary British law, right? Um, another example that I think Oakshot uses is uh, the donation of Constantine. Um, the donation of Constantine is an important uh, artifact for canon lawyers in the Middle Ages, um, making the claim that the Pope has temporal priority um, or temporal primacy. Um, when the Lorenzo Valla proves more or less that the donation is a forgery or a fraud, it has no value for the for canon lawyers anymore, right? But for a good historian, that's just as good a story after all, right? I mean, so the historian still asks, so how how could it come about that people believed that this was actually an authentic document? Uh, how how would it come about that people actually thought that, you know, uh, Constantine could in fact just give 
the Roman Empire, the Western part of the Roman Empire to the Pope, right? Um, because obviously, let's just say if we had a modern day Lorenzo uh, uh, um, Valla come around and say, no, no, I've proven that the donation of Constantine is, is actually authentic. I don't think that most Europeans would say, oh, well, I guess the Pope is actually, you know, the ultimate authority over us after all, right? You constantly refer to Butterfield as, um, well, you explain a lot of his contributions in terms of his own Augustinian Christianity um, that played a fundamental role in his outlook. Um, talk a little bit, I mean, we'll talk about the politics in a bit and his view of, um, you know, the, the sinful nature of man and how that plays into things. But um, did he did he rest his historical views on anything in, in Augustinianism at all? Well, um, Augustine himself um, in the City of God certainly makes it, I think, fairly plain that Augustine said, Augustine more or less says that there are two ways of treating sort of human actions. You can you can offer secular explanations and you can offer Christian explanations, and they are not the same. Um, um, his treatment of the of, of of the Roman Empire, for example. Um, from a Christian perspective, Augustine says, well, the Roman Empire, of course, is full of, you know, fallen humanity, and it certainly doesn't even approach the, you know, the majesty of our eternal war reward in heaven. So, on the other hand, from a purely human perspective, the Romans do a fairly good job of keeping the peace and keeping order. So that's, that's a good thing. Uh, and Butterfield, in, uh, again, making this distinction between technical history or academic history, and what he calls prophetic history, uh, is making the same kind of distinction. So yeah, Augustine actually does inform, at least in part, this uh, uh, this particular kind of distinction that he makes in terms of historical explanation. Okay, one more question on history, and then we'll move forward a little bit. Do you think Butterfield would have seen like a meaning in history? Was history driving uh, towards something, or does that really not weigh into his uh, interpretation of, of things? Well, he would reject the uh, any kind of teleological history um, um, in terms of what he called technical or, or or academic history. But obviously, as a Christian, that's what I'm saying. I mean, he he makes this fairly sharp distinction, right? And so, um, academic history is episodic. It is concerned with you know changes, but it's not concerned with directing the change towards producing us in some sort of way. Right. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, as a, as a, a good Methodist, as a good Augustinian Methodist, certainly he, he thought history had a meaning, a meaning, the ultimate meaning was this, was the, the Christian one, right. That's the, the, the ultimate reason that human beings exist, that human beings are valuable is that God created them and that uh, Jesus came to redeem them. So, so let's shift a little bit. There's a lot of talk in you know, historical theory about you know, where the transitions were between like classical history or you know, the medieval age to the modern age. Uh, you know, some people would point to the Reformation or the Renaissance. Um, Butterfield, and by the way, C.S. Lewis would agree with, with you know, Butterfield here. He placed um, sort of the, the turning of the tides in the scientific uh, revolution. So talk a little bit about, you know, his views of science and what that meant for, you know, the apocal changes toward modernity. Uh, 
Yeah, he he more or less said that the Renaissance and Reformation weren't nearly as important as the scientific re- revolution. Now, I mean, he made he, he, his claim was that uh, I think more or less that human beings began to understand the world and themselves in completely different ways after the scientific revolution. Um, he made a similar case, though, that they that there was an historical revolution too that people now understand the past in particularly in in, in different ways. Um, the importance of the scientific revolution for Butterfield was that um, the scientific revolution seemed to prove that real progress was possible. Mm-hmm. That is, you know. Uh, Newton solving problems and Galileo solving problems and things like this. This made it certainly appear that at least in the natural sciences that problems could be solved and that especially in the appropriation of scientific truths by people, you know, um, inventing things, (laughs) right? That technology could actually, technology itself was a was a sign or even a proof that a progress was possible. Um, And he also made the, I think, the interesting observation that although most of these early natural scientists were in fact um, fairly orthodox Christians of various sorts, that the uh, popularizers of of science were not. Um, They were, for the most part, um, um, philosophes from, from the Enlightenment, I think, Fenelon was one of the the, the, the main ones, uh, and so that the popularized version of the of natural science tended to lead to a more secularized understanding of human beings, um, but it also opened up this notion that well, if we can actually understand the natural world much better than we used to, then we can probably understand human beings much better than we used to in the same way. Uh, and so the idea was, on the one hand, sort of, the, you know, the, led to the creation of social sciences. Um, but on the other, it led to, <coughs> excuse me, it led to a, a, a generalization of this notion that progress is possible. So that progress is not only possible in the natural sciences, progress is possible in, you know, morality, right? progress is possible for just generally human nature that we can just be better human beings and so um the 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 counter to augustinianism i suppose is pelagianism then right uh um so butterfield saw that natural science not natural science in itself but the way that natural science was understood by most people led to a kind of Pelagian faith in human goodness and and progress. So we, so he would say that the, the Whig interpretation of history came out of the scientific revolution? Um, well, they're not they're not completely related. The, okay. the historical revolution came after, and he generally dates it to the end of the 18th century and the early part of the 19th century, and specifically at the University of Göttingen, um, where on on the one side historians more or less began to sort of what free themselves from the shackles of practical concerns or religious concerns or political concerns and on the other hand developed so what you might call the modern methods or techniques of historical research that is the use of 
archival material and and authenticating historical evidence and all of these types of things. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you know, and you emphasized you know the fact that he was critical of the view that you know of human perfection that humans can get better over time. Um, and that played a role in in some of his contributions to international politics and international relations theory. So talk a little bit about um, you know his view of of the the sinful or the evil nature of man and international political theory. Well, his yeah, his his practical politics, I I sort of describe them I think as skeptical liberalism, but mm-hmm. uh, but I think that you know with a a small c, he certainly could be understood as a conservative thinker. Um, uh, he, his Augustinianism sort of manifested itself in two different ways, both domestically and you know, in terms of domestic politics and in terms of international politics. Um, on the one hand, um, human beings are inherently flawed and they are not perfectible. Um, that is to say, they are self-interested to the point of selfishness. They're not very good at making judgments in their own cases. Um on the other hand, human beings are the, you know, each human being is a unique creation of God and so valuable in, in you know, himself or herself. Uh, so domestically that tended, to, you know, that led to this sort of skeptical liberalism that I talked about. Internationally, um, it led to um, his collaboration with Martin White in sort of creating the English School of International Relations um, which is kind of a via media between sort of Kantian utopian uh, international relations theory and the sort of, you know, more Hobbesian or Machiavellian realism. Uh, and the idea here is that, uh, yes, individuals are, st- are <laughs> individuals everywhere are sinful uh, uh, and flawed. Um, so we shouldn't expect to eliminate, you know, war we shouldn't expect to eliminate conflict it's just that that's at the heart of things um uh, of course states are different than individuals and that states themselves don't exactly (laughs) butterville is pretty reluctant i think to use the word sin in relation to this large amorphous organization called the state what he did say though was that um states also act self-interestedly. Um, all of them do. There is no exception. And so what this means at the international level is that unlike at the um, um, domestic level where there is a single authority that can in, that can enforce order to a certain extent, at the international level, there is no such uh, entity. Uh, and so what's surprising to Butterfield is not that conflict actually breaks out every once in a while, but that conflict doesn't happen all of the time, which in, is, is at least in part one of the claims of realism that, that Butterfield wants to get away from. And so he, what he wants to say is that there are different sorts of institutions that mm-hmm. can mitigate uh, conflict, just at, like at the domestic level, you know, laws and customs and morals can mitigate human, you know, cupidity, which is one of his favorite terms, right? Um, at the international level, um, there are various institutions. Um, 
um, treaties. Or, I mean, the three that he wants to use more often than any are the balance of power, um, diplomacy, and limited warfare. And so unlike most, let's say, Kantian internationalists, um, and like realists, um, Butterfield says, you know, wars are going to happen. And the best thing to do about wars is to, is to try to put into place institutions that will make them less violent. Um, but recognizing that wars will happen and are not completely illegitimate is one of the ways to make them less violent because it can actually then lead more easily or recognizing the legitimacy of some sorts of warfare can make it easier to, to end hostilities. Have you ever thought about what Butterfield might say or how he would interact with current debates between uh, like, a, like a nationalist America first foreign policy and sort of the internationalist tendencies? What do you think he would weigh in in any particular way on that debate? Huh. Butterfield, <laughs> Butterfield didn't like the U.S. at all. <laughs> right. And so, and so if he posed it in those terms, he would probably like, you know, come out against whatever the U.S. Was well, like. well, I, I just meant in terms of like, like for him, like, is there an English national interest? Yeah. Oh, yes. Right. Well, and he would perfect. He would be perfectly fine with saying so. So, so I'll, I'll go back and, and address the question in a, a less flippant way. <laughs> OK, he, uh, he he would certainly acknowledge that the U.S. has national interests that that Americans can legitimately defend um, and that Britain has national interests that British can legitimately defend. Um, his internationalism was not of, again, this universalist kind, though. Um, and so it, uh, so I'm sure, I mean, in a way, he would be much more sympathetic, obviously, to a an American foreign policy that didn't make messianic claims about, you know, making the world safe for democracy or, you know, having a war to end all wars or or even going around and more or less again, in, you know, forcing other countries to actually try to become like us. Mm -hmm. right? He was very, so he would be very much like an anti-neoconservative. Oh yeah, yeah, right, 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 right. Yes, I mean, he, yeah, the, the kind of sort of, you know, universal universalist interventionism of, you know, the Wilson idealists and, you know, contemporary neoconservative uh, um, you know, warmongers <laughs> would have been anathema to me. In fact, I, I uh, this uh, this was recognized. Uh, um, it, it was after, of course, a good deal after he died. Um, and Gertrude Himmelfarb, who was the wife of um, Irving, Irving, Irving Crystal, Crystal. Mm -hmm. or yeah, Irving Crystal, right, and was a fairly well-respected historian of nineteenth-century Britain, um, wrote a really nasty and and just moronic uh, um sort of review of butterfield's oeuvre for the the new republic i think oh really interesting interesting i didn't know that yeah yeah. where she more or less castigated butterfield for for not hating the germans enough in the first right. half of the century and then castigated him for not hating the russians enough in the second half of the century uh so so yes uh you know, if you if you're can be identified by whom your enemies are, Butterfield obviously is looking good on that uh, <laughs> on that uh, um, 
situation. Do you think the birth of like Wilsonianism and internationalism in that sense, do you think that motivated some of his commentary on international relations? Oh, yeah. I mean, certainly. I mean, he was the uh, he really didn't start writing about international relations until I think after the Second War. OK, um, but uh, he uh, he wrote he, he wrote quite a bit. Well, he wrote essays about the international system in the, the 19th century, and he wrote about the breakdown of the international system in World War I. Uh, and certainly, the, yes, the target, one of the primary targets of, of critique in, in his whole international theory is Wilsonian universalism. And for, for Butterfield, the great tragedy of, uh, uh, I think, the modern world was World War I, mm -hmm. um, which destroyed the, the old international system. Uh, it destroyed uh, um, the sense that, at least from, according to him, that European civilization was, you know, kind of one civilization after all, um, and it uh, ushered in an era of, uh, of on the one side, you know, passivism almost, uh, um, and on the other side, ideological crusading. Right, you know, World War One for Berlin. I'm sorry for for Butterfield, um, more or less led to the rise of Nazi Germany, and of course the creation of the Soviet Union took place during the 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 last days of of the First World War, uh, and the U.S. instead of and the U.S., Britain, and France instead of acting like uh, um, good old nineteenth-century European countries and limit have with limited war aims. Um, they demanded total surrender and then more or less, you know, uh, um, treated this as an ideological crusade, attempted to destroy Germany, which more or less allowed the Soviet Union to, you know, survive and thrive um, and allowed, you know, for the rise of, of Nazism. You mentioned that he was um, not a fan of the United States. Was was that a, a lot of did a lot of that have to do with um, just its cultural nature, or did it have to do with its um, ascending f function on the world scene? What what was the base of his criticism? Uh, he didn't. Although he was a, uh, it's kind of odd. I mean, I, a lot of British conservative uh, um, conservatives didn't did not, and I guess still don't really care for the U.S. Because of its uh, um, uh, seeming, you know, materialism, its crassness, its lack of taste, you know. Yeah, it's utilitarianism. It's utilitarianism, right? Um, and uh, um, despite his own Christianity, Butterfield was really suspicious of sort of evangelical, sort of you know, evangelical in the strict sense of the term, you know. Uh, um, knocking on doors, trying to convert everybody, uh, uh, um, and trying to change the, um, the laws. He was he he he, uh, he didn't actually drink, um, um, but when he came to the he came to the U.S. and I think went to Princeton for a year on a like a some kind of you know uh, exchange program or something, and this was. Or maybe this was like it was. It was during some time in, in which either prohibition had already passed, or there was you know there was talk about this. And so 
But Butterfield apparently took up drinking okay. just just to be contrary to the American the American feeling about it at the time. Yeah, uh, which I yeah. find kind of kind of kind of amusing. But yeah, in terms of uh, in terms of the power of the U.S., I think Butterfield um, Butterfield was skeptical of the U.S. because the U.S. tended to basically claim that it was the most righteous you know nation in the world and tended to identify itself with you know goodness and and he saw that Britain the uh, Britain had a tendency to do that too and so for him the U.S. was inheriting a lot of the sort of negative almost blasphemous for him uh, uh, characteristics of Britain in the sense that they were more or less claiming we are not only a Christian nation. We are the Christian nation, right? We are here to save the world or something like this. It's like the, the Blues Brothers line, you know, we're on a mission from God. There's a, there's a good book, an intellectual biography by another McIntyre. Uh, C, is it C.T. McIntyre, I think? And you, you've- yeah, C.T. McIntyre. He's, he is a, a, a theology professor, I believe, at Toronto. Right. Um, and but, he wrote, and he wrote a big book. He has, I think, I think the phrase, the subtitle on the on the book is um, the dissenter as historian, if I recall. What does right. what does that mean to you? What, why why would that be like an emphasis there? What does that mean? His dissenter as historian. Well, the, I mean the uh, so um, I'm I'm not a, a, a an historian of Christianity, but my recollection is that so the Methodists, um, the, the followers of John Wesley, were considered to be dissenters within the Anglican Church. And so as a strong Methodist, one sort of, I guess, slangish term to, to, to use for him would be dissenter. Uh, and McIntyre's, uh, McIntyre's um, one of his primary arguments is that it's, it's his Methodism that more or less informs everything mm. that he does. Um, I, and my, my treatment of his of his Christianity is not as I, th I think, or in my treatment of him, I'm more interested in his uh, um, sort of act, in his ideas than in the sort of the, the background of them, where he came up with them and those types of things. And so it wasn't uh, as important. Although again, he was known, uh, a, a lot of his friends said that, that he was, you know, a, sort of an inveterate contrarian. And that what he would like as much as anything was to just take the other side in any argument. So that was that was part of my point. You know, yeah. just that was just part of his personality, and you yes. can see that come out with the story about his drinking and, yeah. um, you know, and, and I guess I guess that leads to my next question. Um, just generally speaking, with his academic position and influence, did any of those around him did, did he have a good group of people that agreed with him, or was he pretty much kind of a, a single man against the world? Oh no! Well, I mean, he was—he was, I think, uh, you know, a, a seminal figure in uh, in historiography in in, in Britain. Um, uh, the the Cambridge School of Intellectual Historians, you know, their genealogy runs right through Butterfield. Uh, John Pocock was was uh, um, a student of of Butterfield's and wrote his. Uh, wrote his dissertation under Butterfield. And in fact, um, but, uh, Pocock wrote for his first book called The Ancient Constitution and the Feudal Law. The second book was called The Machiavellian Moment. 
and then he's written a series of, of books on historiography. All three of those projects, very large, very complex, extraordinarily um, erudite and, and well-written, um, um, Butterfield had already written on all three of those topics, which is to me has always been re really interesting. But he, but Butterfield's writing was, was slim, and again, sort of, he wrote these things on occasional basis, bases for talks and things like this. But Butterfield and uh, the Englishman and his history talks about all of the stuff that Pocock's going to talk about in the ancient Constitution. Butterfield has a little book on Machiavelli where he makes points that I think influence Pocock's work. Uh, and of course, uh, um, Butterfield's interest in, in historiography then informs Pocock's work too. Uh, and Pocock, along with Quentin Skinner, John Donne, um, uh, what's the, Peter Laslett and others. Yeah, they were probably the most important intellectual historians of, you know, of the late 20th century and have, spawned all sorts of <laughs> students and things like this so i mean his influence was significant mm -hmm. and he was and he was was he well liked I, i'm not sure about that but he was you know he was respected enough to be named the regis professor and the vice chancellor uh, so he obviously was uh, um, was extraordinarily successful uh, he gave he was he, he gave the gifford lectures which is one of the more prestigious uh, um, um, lecture series in in Britain, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I I don't think that he would have thought that he had uh, um, been a lone wolf. Today, you know, historical fields are are very political, um, and I don't know if that's just you know the way we uh, digest it as as lay as lay people. Um, but we, everywhere we look, you know, there's always a political, usually a left wing or, or woke angle to our interpretation of history. Do you think he still has an influence um, at all? Or do you think sort of his age has kind of just been trampled over? Um, well, uh, I think that the perspective of, um, of, of people um, outside of the academy is probably a little different than the perspective of those inside in that, um, well, <clears throat> the kind of historians who, who are going to go out and appear on, you know, talk shows and write op-eds and things like this are, you know, going to be political historians, but there are still a, a, you know, a, a ton of working historians out there who don't do that and who aren't all that interested in it. Uh, and so write good academic histories. Um, um, so I, I mean, I, is, is he, is, the, is the Whig interpretation still extraordinarily influential? Um, I think so. Um, are the other things that he, I mean, the, I mean, <clears throat> the origins of science was one of the seminal again, works in the history of science. Now, is that work itself still really influential? I don't know. I, I doubt it, but the fact that history of science exists is at least in part uh, due to, to, to Butterfield. Um, the English School of International Relations is still around. I think Barry Buzan uh, published a book on the, on the English School here about two or three years ago. Uh, so I think his influence is still is still uh, um, you know fairly significant. Um, 
you know, I, I don't know that other other than the Whig interpretation, I don't know that the other that the other books that he wrote are still that in, influential. Okay, in the last section, I want to talk a little bit about you know Butterfield's role to uh, conservatism. This essay that you produced was part of the series, remembering the right. So you know what what would make Butterfield um, you know uh, applicable for that for that series? I guess I'll start with the question, uh, and maybe you don't you don't you haven't read a lot of like someone like Edmund Burke, but do you think um, do you think Butterfield would be sort of in that Burkean vein of his of how he approached history and, and the role of historical development at all? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, uh, you know, one, one of the interesting things about Burke um, is that, uh, so I, I have a, one of my degrees is from a British university, and my dissertation supervisor is English, uh, and I tended to work a lot on uh, sort of British, British intellectual history. Um, one, of the, one of the interesting things about Burke himself is that the interpretation of Burke in the U.S. is very different than the interpretation of Burke in, in Britain. Talk about in, that. That's interesting. In, in Britain, Burke is seen first and foremost as a, a politician, as a statesman, as a politician. He was a mm -hmm. kind of an exemplary uh, um, 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 politician, whereas here he's understood to be sort of the father of conservative political philosophy. That is, I, I don't know of any sort of British academic who've ever come across who would say, who would use philosopher to describe <laughs> Burke. Um and so temperamentally and dispositionally, I think that, uh, yeah, that, that what uh, um, Butterfield has to say about British history, about, about the good kind of Whigism, which is Whig politicians, uh, the good kind of Whigism, yeah, is right in line with what Burke thought was the good part of Whigism himself. And so I think that they're fairly close in that, uh, in that area. So he, so he is someone you could consider like a small C conservative. Um, and so what, what would make him, you know, compared to everything else going on today, an authentic conservative as a, we already talked about neoconservative, um, what would make him uh, a representative of an old right, you know, uh, just in, in a general sense? Well, it's, I mean, the, the, the term, uh, I think is a difficult one because, um, if you're going to use it politically and if you're going to take sort of good old fashioned, you know, Burkean type conservatives seriously, then being a conservative is going to be different uh, depending upon where you are and what age you're living in, right? Because conservatism, um, as Oakshot, I think, points out quite often, is about conserving what is. And so Burke wants to conserve what? The, the, the monarchy and the the Anglican Church and the old traditional nobility and et cetera, et cetera, right? But of course, by the time Butterfield's writing, you know, the monarchy has almost no power at all. And uh, so, what 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 Butterfield's talking about conserving is going to be different. And of course, what Americans talk about, or what what a, what a legitimate or an authentic, I think, kind of American conservatism would would be talking about would be different as well. Um, and, and so I think that it's perfectly reasonable to think about him as a conservative. I mean, I, I included some of these sort of maxims that he came up with, uh, in the article. Um, and, uh, um, in part because he takes more or less a practical and anti-ideological approach to political life. Um, 
um, and I think that that's sort of at the heart of what is, you know, uh, um, conservative, uh, um, at least that's something that actually conservatives here, there and everywhere else might share in common that they're opposed to, you know, the politics of abstract nouns as he as he put it sometimes. Right. So la last question here. What do you think Butterfield um, has to teach people today, you know, whether it's related to political uh, philosophy or, you know, the way that people read and, and look into history? What, what, what lessons do you think we can draw from Butterfield? Well, I think in terms of the academic question, I mean, the, the sort of the academic life, uh, I think one of the most significant um, uh, lessons to be learned is that not everything is about us. <laughs> And that is that there are a lot of things that are important in the world and that are interesting in the world, but that don't necessarily concern whether we're going to succeed or fail in life. That there are a lot of ways of thinking about the world that are not concerned solely with changing it or conserving it. There are a lot of things that are aesthetically interesting, that are historically interesting. Um, and so I think that Butterfield has a good deal to say about um, what? enlightening us on the diversity of ways of understanding the world uh, and rejecting the notion or the, the sort of the reductionism of, of, uh, of, of you know, practical thinking. Mm -hmm. So you've written a book on Michael Oakeshott and you've written a book on Herbert Butterfield. And do you have anything else on your plate coming out soon? Well, I, I, I wrote a book called Nomocratic Pluralism, which is okay. a kind of defense of uh, classical liberalism um, based not on natural rights theory or utilitarianism, but on moral or value pluralism, and that came <clears throat> that came out a couple of years ago. Okay, and I have co-edited with Gene Callahan two uh, um, volumes uh, um, called "Critics of Enlightenment Rationalism," and then "Critics of Enlightenment Rationalism Revisited," where we cover all a whole panoply of thinkers. Uh, who, uh, some of whom could certainly be called small C conservatives, but uh, what they have in common is more or less a rejection of sort of scientific reductionism. Um, and Butterfield could certainly fall within that uh, category too. Well, good. Well, thank you for your essay and thank you for the book. I think uh, Butterfield is a fascinating historical figure and I hope people um, pick up your book and maybe pick up the Whig interpretation of history, which is probably the best introduction to um, to Butterfield. But thank you for your time. We'll link to all the books that you mentioned and we'll have you on again. All right. Thanks a lot.